0: If I were to ask you to show me where Jesus is found in the Bible, where would be the first place you would take me? My guess is many of you would start at the book of Matthew, right? Or the book of Mark, or the book of Luke, or John. You might also take me to the epistles of Paul, or Peter, or John. But how many of you would take me to Zechariah? that's where we're going to be today. Now as some of you know already who have done some reading ahead or as many of you are going to discover this next week or as many of you may already know who have read through that book, Zechariah is a very unique book in this section of scripture. Many have said that it is to the Old Testament what the book of Revelation is to the New Testament. So it can be a real challenging read because like Revelation, there is a lot of mystery in the book of Zechariah. It's apocalyptic. It's prophetic. There's a lot of imagery and a whole lot of debate as to what these images and these visions and this figurative language mean. But though that's the case, something else you find in this book that makes it very Unique is it is one of the most Christ-centered books in all the Old Testament. Now, all the Old Testament is about Christ, right? We've talked about that time and time again, but some have a greater emphasis than others, and Zechariah is one of those books. You often hear the book of Isaiah reference when pastors in Teachers are showing where Jesus is found in the Old Testament. We had a great passage from Isaiah read this morning. That's a great place to go. But another great place to go is the book of Zechariah. So if you have your Bibles, turn there now to the book of Zechariah. We're down to our last two books in this section of Scripture. This week we'll discuss Zechariah. Next week we'll be in Malachi. And then we'll be through with this series but today we're in Zechariah and in this book like the book of Revelation it's real easy to allow yourself to get bogged down in all of the details of this book and many have they create charts from the ceiling to the to the floor They go detail by detail through this book and through the end of Daniel and through Christ Olivet Discourse and through Revelation, through parts of 2 Thessalonians explaining the symbolism and going through all these little details and they get bogged down in those details. They use these books as a blueprint for how the end is going to go down. And many of them, they read the newspaper back into the Bible and when they read it, they say, it's going to happen tomorrow. Many are confident in their views on the end times. Though get this, few conservative biblical scholars agree on the interpretation of these books across the board. Now they agree that Christ is coming back and there's going to be a final judgment, and there's going to be a resurrection of those to eternal life and those to eternal death. But there's a lot of disagreement that they have. R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, Wayne Grudem, solid biblical scholars agree on a lot, but they completely disagree on the end times and the how and the when it's all going to take place and what's already taken place. But let me ask you this. Do you think that was the intent of Zechariah or John's intent in Revelation? Do you think they wrote these books so that we would create these charts from the ceiling to the floor and have these long, drawn-out debates on whether or not the locusts represent helicopters? Some of y'all know what I mean, right? You grew up hearing that? Yeah. Do you think that's that's what they intended to happen? Let me ask you this. What good would that have done the Christians in John's day who were facing persecution? Or what good would that have done those in Zechariah's day who had returned from Babylonian captivity and were picking up the pieces of God's temple that was in shambles? You see, it's so important that we understand the context in which these books were written so that we'll understand how we're to read and understand these books. Folks, that's the way you're to read the Word of God. And what we find when we do that is that in both of these books, they're both written as a warning and for the purpose of encouraging the audience of the day. In John's day, he's writing to a group of of Christians who are being persecuted for their faith, and he's writing them to tell them to stay faithful. Keep trusting. Keep following hard after God. Keep trusting in Christ, because those who are in Christ win in the end. No matter what happens in this life, those who are in Christ are on the winning side, and those who are not will have to face him and his judgment in the last day. That's John's emphasis. And Zechariah, Zechariah like Haggai, who we talked about last week, is writing to a group of Jews who have just returned from Babylonian captivity. And like we said last week, Haggai's message is they need to get back to work and get busy living for God and building God's temple. And Zechariah's message to them is very similar. Now, like we said a moment ago, the book of Zechariah, other than being unique in this way, being the Old Testament equivalent to the book of Revelation, it's unique in another way. Like we've already said, it's, it's as Christ-centered a book as any you'll find in the Old Testament. It actually has more references to the Messiah than any other book in the Old Testament. Now, as many of you know, nothing is placed in these books by accident, right? Or by by random chance. We know that these books are inspired by God. So the question we must ask this morning is this, why are there so many messianic references in this book? Well, here's the reason. The reason is because the major emphasis the major message of the book of Zechariah is this. His message is you need to reestablish God's kingdom by rebuilding his temple and the reason why is because the work that is beginning in you is going to be fulfilled in God's man the Messiah in Christ Jesus. God is going to restore his temple. He's going to restore his his kingdom. And he's going to do it by way of his Messiah. Therefore, begin this work, begin this kingdom work by rebuilding his temple. That's the message of Zechariah. So here's what I want to do this morning. Because this book is the largest book in this section of scripture with 14 chapters, it's going to be impossible for us in 30 minutes to get our arms around it. Um, I have provided for you in the foyer, you'll find on your way out on the welcome table I have provided an outline to the book of Zechariah that you can take with you. It's taken from Dr. Kendall Easley's book, the uh, Holman Quick Source Guide. understanding the Bible. You remember Dr. Easley was here with us in February. That's taken uh, that chapter out of his book. So you can take that with you as you read through Jeremiah this week and that'll that'll really help you. But what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to really narrow our focus, okay, and and really zoom in on four specific things that the prophet Zechariah says about this Messiah to come who's going to usher in God's kingdom and then what i want to do is this i want us to flip over to the book of matthew to see how jesus fulfilled these prophecies 500 years later and then i want us to step back and i want us to look at each of these promises and each of these fulfillments and i want to discuss how these fulfilled prophecies should serve to encourage us today okay all right so let's, let's begin by, by first looking at a, some specific teachings found in the book of Zechariah about the Messiah to come. Here's the first thing we learn. First thing Zechariah teaches us is that the Messiah will come in humility. He will come in humility. It's one of the main messages here in the book of Zechariah about the Messiah to come. Look at Zechariah Chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah 9 9. Listen to what he says here. See if this sounds familiar to you. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Notice here that God says through his prophet Zechariah, I'm going to send my Messiah to you. I'm going to send you your king. I'm going to provide him for you. And he is going to be righteous and he is going to have salvation. And he's also going to be lowly. He's going to be humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Be honest, that's a very unique prophecy, isn't it? Now, many of us know what Zechariah is talking about here because we can read this text with New Testament eyes. But let's say we didn't have the New Testament. Let's say that this is the only verse that we have about God's coming Messiah. This would be very strange, wouldn't it? Zechariah says, your king is going to come to you and he's going to be humble." In other translations it says he's going to be poor, he's going to be lowly, he's going to be gentle, he's going to be riding a donkey. Not too intimidating, right? And not just a donkey, but a colt. The foal of a donkey, so a little one. And we're told in this story that riding this animal was a sign of peace and a sign of humility. And so Zechariah says to the Jews of his day, God is going to provide you with the Messiah, with the King, and he is going to come, he's going to bring salvation and peace and is going to come to you in humility, riding a donkey. Now let's see where we see the fulfillment of this 500 years later. Turn over to Matthew 21 and mark where you are in Zechariah and mark where you are in Matthew because we're going to be flipping back and forth, okay? Matthew 21. The reason why I have you turning to Matthew is because Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And one of the major reasons for Matthew's gospel, one of his major purposes in writing is to inform the Jews of his day that Jesus is God's man. He is God's Messiah. He is the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and later to David and Zerubbabel whom we talked about last week. And Matthew makes the point in his gospel that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the prophets said about the Messiah to come in these books and in the books of Isaiah and in the minor prophet books of Zephaniah and Micah and Haggai and Zechariah. He's riding distress. Jesus is God's man. He's God's Messiah. Look at what he says. Matthew 21, 1 through 6. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. This is what we refer to as the triumphal entry right this is when jesus enters into jerusalem to be acknowledged and to be praised as king and to establish god's kingdom and he entered into jerusalem notice on a donkey on the colt the foal of a donkey now think about again how different this is from the way most kings enter in and establish a new kingdom This is not the way most kingdoms are established, right? When most kings come in to establish a new kingdom, they don't normally come in humility, and their kingdoms are not normally established in a peaceful manner. Most cases, it's the exact opposite, isn't it? But not with Christ. He comes in humility, and this was not uncharacteristic of him. He entered into this world in humility humility. He was born in a barn in Bethlehem. He slept in a feeding trough. He grew up in Nazareth, which was far from being a progressive and prominent city at this time. When told where Jesus was from, remember Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, Nazareth was hick town. And, and Joseph and Mary were nobody's from this hick town. And remember, Jesus, as he got older, he didn't run around with the who's who in the religious crowd, did he? He hung out with tax collectors and rough and gruff fishermen, various kinds and types of sinners. He lived a very humble life, though he was God incarnate. When it came time for him to be acknowledged and praised as King, we're told Jesus enters in to Jerusalem in humility. And though the disciples may have thought it strange at the time, later as Matthew is reflecting on all that Jesus had said and had done during his earthly ministry, he thought on this event and he was reminded of the prophecy spoke, that, that was spoken by Zechariah, And he, he tells us in this gospel that this event is a direct fulfillment of that, a direct fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. So, so Zechariah tells us that the Messiah will come in humility. Here's the second teaching we have in Zechariah about the coming of the Messiah. Zechariah tells us he'll be betrayed for very little. For 30 pieces of silver to be exact. That's pretty specific, isn't it? I mean, this is more than just a broad, generic type of prophecy. This is very specific. Let's look at it. Zechariah 11. Zechariah 11. Look at verses 12 through 13. In this chapter, we have a parable that is told about a good shepherd... Who is rejected by his flock? You have the shepherd who cares for his flock. He's concerned for his flock. He feeds them and cares for them, but they reject him. Look at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 11. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the the lordly price. Now, there's some sarcasm there, all right, because the potter was low class, all right? There's some sarcasm there. The lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. At this time... 30 pieces of silver would have been a very, very minimal amount of money. That's why I'm saying he's using sarcasm there. So as we said a moment ago in this parable, we learn that the shepherd was doing all that he could to care for the flock, and the flock rejects him. And so he says, okay, if it seems good to you, give me my wages. And they gave him this minimal amount of money, 30 pieces of silver. Though this shepherd had fed them, cared for them, protected them, they rejected him and they paid him off with this measly amount of money. We're told that he takes that money and he throws it into the house of the Lord, to the potter. Now remember the last part of that parable, okay? It's going to be significant in just a minute. Turn back to Matthew 26. Look at verse 14. Or you can look at it up here on the screen. I believe we have it up here. Matthew 26, 14, listen to this. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him how many silver coins? 30 silver coins. And from that moment on, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Jesus is the good shepherd, folks. He was sent by God to guide and direct his flock. And Judas is one of the ones in his flock. And though Jesus cared for Judas, though he provided for Judas, though he shepherded Judas, what did Judas do? He rejected him and he betrayed him and he sold him out for how much? For 30 pieces of silver and as you continue reading in matthew's account here's what you find judas feels remorse after betraying innocent blood and he tries to return the money and they say they don't want it so he throws it into the temple and the priests, because they don't want that blood money they go take it and they buy a field and you know what the name of that field is we find out in matthew 27 it's potter's field So again, Matthew makes mention of this prophecy to affirm that Jesus is the promised Messiah and and that Zechariah prophesied about who is going to come and who is going to restore God's kingdom. Matthew says Jesus is the promised Messiah that Zechariah mentions in Zechariah 9 and in Zechariah 11 who will come in humility and who will be rejected and betrayed and sold for 30 pieces of silver. Here's the third teaching we find about the Messiah from the book of Zechariah, number three. We learn he'll be struck down. He'll be struck down. Now, when we learn that the Messiah is going to come in humility, that should have surprised them a bit if they understood that prophecy. Like we said, this is uncharacteristic of most kings. Normally, if a king is going to come and is going to establish a new kingdom. He would not come in peace and in humility. Kings don't normally come in humility. They come in glory, right? And and normally when they take over, it's not in a peaceful manner. There's a lot of bloodshed. Another thing that is surprising about this future Messiah is that this future Messiah to come is going to be betrayed by one of his own for a minimal amount of money. Both of those truths are shocking they're surprising but this third point here is extremely shocking and i'm sure if you had any in zachariah's day who understood this they would have said this just doesn't make sense that the messiah is going to come in humility and be betrayed by one of his own and then is going to be struck down but when you get to the new testament it starts to make sense doesn't it Listen to Matthew 26, 31. We have it up on the screen as well. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Notice it says, for it is written. Whenever you hear that, you know that they're about to reference something old, something from the Old Testament. He's he's referencing something that was said long ago. Now, where do you think this was said? Take a wild guess. What book? Zechariah. Exactly right. He's quoting Zechariah 13, 7. Listen to this. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd against the man who stands next to me declares the lord of hosts so notice this the lord of hosts is talking to his sword and he's saying awake against my shepherd who stands next to me what side do you think he stands on the right hand side right then he says strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered Jesus quoted these words on the night before he was crucified. He was, he was preparing his disciples for his death, and he's trying to explain to them what's going to happen and why. He says, I'm going to die, and my death is going to be a fulfillment of what was said in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, when he said that the shepherd will be struck down and the sheep will be scattered. And Jesus said, when I die, though I will die at the hand hands of wicked men. It is ultimately God who's striking me down for you. And you, the sheep, the flock, are going to be scattered. Now, folks, there are many who don't like this doctrine. It teaches that God struck down his son. But you see it all throughout the scriptures. We just read it in Isaiah 53. It was the will of God to crush his son. It was the will of the father to do that. And this teaching is at the heart of the gospel message. Scripture is clear that God had to strike down his son. He had to crush him so that he would not have to strike us down, so that he would not have to crush us, so that a way could be opened up for us to be made right with him. Look at what Zechariah says in Zechariah 13.1. I love this verse of scripture right here. Look at what he says. Zechariah says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Man, there is some great imagery going on right here. Here Zechariah gives us an image of a fountain that God provides for his people. And he says that fountain is going to be opened up and God's people are going to be able to come to this fountain and be cleansed from sin and uncleanness. We learn that the Messiah to come, the king that God is going to send, is going to be struck down by God. And when this happens, there's going to be a fountain opened up that is going to cleanse God's people from sin And And again, if we just had that, just Zechariah's words in Zechariah 13, that would be a bit confusing, right? But when we get to Matthew, things start to make sense. In Matthew's gospel, we learn that God the Father offered up his son Jesus for us, our perfect sacrifice. He struck him down for us so that he would not have to strike us down. And we learn that, that Jesus laid his life down. And when he bled and died for us, a fountain was opened up for sinners like you and me so that we could come to him and be cleansed from that fountain so that we could be washed in his blood, so that we could be covered in his sacrifice, and so that we could stand before God, righteous in Christ. There's a wonderful song, sung about this passage of Scripture in Zechariah 13. It's called, There is a fountain filled with blood. In this song are these lyrics. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Wow, it's beautiful, isn't it? That's the gospel. Zechariah prophesied about it. Matthew and others spoke of its fulfillment in Christ. He, Jesus, is the Messiah who was sent by God who was offered up by him who was struck down by him he is the lamb who was slain so that a fountain could be opened up filled with this blood so that we could come and be washed and be cleansed from sin and made right with God once again so notice we've learned so far these truths Zechariah tells us about the coming messiah we've learned that he'll come in humility he will be betrayed for very little he'll be struck down by the lord of hosts he'll be struck down by his father and fourth and finally we learn that the messiah will reign as king he'll reign as king we sang about that this morning didn't we Zechariah teaches us that this king who will come in humility and be betrayed by one of his own and will be struck down by God, will one day reign as king. Look at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, I really want to focus in on that last line there. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah, folks, is telling us here that this Messiah to come is going to rule the earth from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus is the king to the ends of the earth. He is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. And there's coming a day when his rule will be obvious to all and will be established everywhere. Notice here, not just king of the Jews. He'll be the king of all peoples everywhere. So Zechariah is prophesying here that the Messiah that God is going to send is going to one day reign as king everywhere and he is king right now reigning but his rule will be obvious won't it it'll be seen by all and this teaching is not just found in one place in matthew but it's found all throughout the the gospel of matthew all throughout mark and luke and john all throughout the book of acts and throughout the epistles all throughout the bible it's found everywhere jesus is king of the jews He's king of the Gentiles. He's Lord of all. And not only is he king of all, but get this, he is king for all time. He is God's forever king. We learn in all four Gospels and all throughout the New Testament that though Jesus came in humility, though he was betrayed by one of his own and struck down by the Lord of hosts on the third day, he rose again. He conquered death with his own death and he rose again. And after that, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where we're told in Philippians from Paul that God has exalted him, Christ, above all else, and has given him, Christ, the name above all names. God has made him Lord of all. We see that in Zechariah, and we see that all throughout the New Testament. Now, what I'd like to do quickly before we close is this. I want us to look back over these prophecies made by Zechariah and fulfilled by Jesus. And I want us to answer this question. Why is this significant? Why should these truths serve to encourage us in our faith today? Here's the first reason. Number one, because they show God's word is reliable. Folks, if you ever question whether or not God's word can be trusted and relied upon, look no further than these prophecies here about Jesus, right? I read recently where there are over three hundred messianic prophecies that have already been fulfilled during Christ's earthly ministry. And a mathematician figured out the mathematical probability of that, and he figured it was one and eighty-four with hundred zeros after it. Now I'm not a mathematician, and I don't know if that's correct. But think about it, 300 prophecies fulfilled in one man, seemingly improbable, right? Yet all of these things came to pass. What should that tell us? I'll tell you. It should tell us this here is God's word. This is God's word right here. The all-knowing. Sovereign God of the universe was with Zechariah when he gave him these words 500 years before Christ came to earth and he was there 500 years after bringing these prophecies to fulfillment letter by letter. Folks, we learn as we look at all of these fulfilled prophecies found in God's word, we learn God can be trusted. We learn that his word is reliable. I hope that encourages you today. In your faith this Is a second reason why this prophecy should encourage us should encourage us because it shows that god's purposes are unchanging god's purposes are unchanging there are many who have made this mistake they they say that the god of the old testament is different from the god of the new His his temperament is different and so are His purposes. Folks, that's not what we find here at all in the Word of God. What we learn in the Word of God is that God is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever and so are His purposes. God did not have one plan for the Old Testament and that plan didn't pan out so He said, well, I've got to resort to plan B. Jesus, you're up. No. From the start... We see God is at work building a kingdom of redeemed people. From the beginning we learn that this work is completed in the person and work of Christ. All of the Old Testament speaks of this work and points to Christ as the fulfillment of this work. And all of the New Testament focuses on Christ and says that he is the fulfillment of all the promises that God made long ago. We see that here in the book of Zechariah and in the book of Matthew. We see in Zechariah that God is going to provide a Messiah who's going to come and is going to restore his kingdom. And we learn from Matthew that Jesus is the promised Messiah who has come and who has done all that Zechariah and the others said he would do. Folks, this truth, again, should encourage you this morning. God is in control. He has one Purpose, one plan, and one person to accomplish this work—the Lord Jesus. A third reason Zachariah's words should encourage us is because they show us God's King is powerful. God's King is powerful. When we look at the Book of Zachariah, we should be encouraged by the power of God's King, the Lord. Jesus. You know, many have a tendency to look upon Jesus with pity. They think, poor, pitiful Jesus, he came in humility, betrayed by his friend, was crucified with criminals. Though these things did happen, listen, Jesus is God's man. He is God's Messiah, the promised Messiah, the reigning king. And though he took on humility and died a painful death on a shameful cross, folks, he did so willingly he willingly laid down his life and conquered death with his own death. And again, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, though he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 9 that God responded by exalting him, giving him a name that is above all names. We're told, so at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God's King is powerful. There's one final reason these prophecies should encourage us and it's because they tell us God's plan has a glorious end. As we've said, there are many prophecies that have already been fulfilled but some have not. But I think the hundreds of prophecies that have should encourage us that the rest are coming, right? We've got to get ready. And what are these prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled? What do they tell us? Well, they tell us that Jesus will reign forever, he will be victorious, and that his kingdom will be the only kingdom standing in the end. And that all of those who are in him are going to share in that glory and are going to share in that victory with him. So if you're here this morning, you're trusting in Christ for your salvation, I hope you're encouraged this morning by these prophecies made by Zechariah and fulfilled in Christ. I hope you're encouraged by the fact that you have God's word that is reliable, that will guide you. And God's Son, who has accomplished this great work of salvation on your behalf, who will stand for you in God's purposes that do not change, that will not fail you, in God's future that is certain, that is promised to you. I hope that encourages you. And if you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Christ for your salvation, I ask you this morning, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Behold the great work of God's Messiah. Consider what he has accomplished and what he will one day accomplish in the future for those who are trusting in him. And I urge you to look to him and place your faith and trust in him and him alone and be saved. Let's pray.